Thank you all. Um, thank you for coming. I'd like to go ahead and get us started. It's a great pleasure to welcome Jorge Bustamante here at Mershon. He is the Eugene Conley Professor of Sociology at the University of Notre Dame. He's also professor and researcher at the El Colegio de la Frontera Notre, uh, which is a prominent Mexican institute for the study of border issues, uh, which he is the founder of. He also serves as a US, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants. Uh, his teaching and research focus on US-Mexican border studies, international migration and human rights, and US population of Mexican origin in the United States. He's a leading participant in international scholarly networks dealing with these themes and has played a major role in building and sustaining scholarly linkages between the United States and Mexico. Professor Bustamante has been quoted as a leading expert by many media, 60 Minutes, the McNeil-Lara NewsHour, Nightline. He's written over 200 articles and so on. He's received numerous honors. He's received the prestigious National Science Award, which was given to him by the former president of Mexico, and the National Award on Demography, which was also given to him for his research uh, by the Mexican president. In 2005, the Mexican Congress named Bustamante as their nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2007, he received the Du Bois Johnson Fraser Award by the American Sociological Association. So it's a great privilege to have him with us. And uh, he's going to speak today on extreme vulnerability of migrants, the case of the United States and Mexico. And I had a chance to have dinner with Professor Bustamante last night, so I know we're in for a very interesting conversation. Thank you. Professor Bustamante, welcome. Can you hear me if I stay seated here? Because that's my preference. That's age-related problem. Uh, <clears throat> what I would like to do is to have a, a, a mixture of, uh, of themes, one related to the notion of uh, vulnerability, which is uh, in part um, derived from my sociological background. And the other is related to something more uh, contemporaneous, uh, which is related to the law enforcement um, uh, programs that uh, ICE, which is, as you know, uh, part of the Homeland Security is uh, the Immigration Custom Enforcement Agency that uh, has been conducting um, residential raids and, uh, and worksite raids uh, all over the United States. And um, uh, this is something that, um, that I was able to hear uh, uh, witnesses and uh, people participating uh, actually victims of this raid uh, during a, an official visit that I made uh, to the United States under my hat as a United Nations Special Rapporteur for the Human Rights of Migrants. Um, this is a, a position that, uh, uh, that uh, it is a group of uh, people that we are selected based on our, in our independence uh, that is, we don't report to governments or uh, any institution uh, that we are uh, depending on. Um, and um, 
and, and this is something that uh, the visits that we do are not the result of the countries that we would like to visit, but the countries that uh, from which governments we have received an official invitation. So, to my surprise, I received an invitation from the United States government. I say to my surprise because I, my research has led me to some criticism uh, of uh, some of the practices in immigration in the United States. And, uh, and I thought that I was not, uh, actually, I, I don't think I, I am uh, very popular in the Department of the State. But nevertheless, uh, they issue an invitation through the delegation of the United States in Geneva. And uh, so I visited the United States uh, three years ago. Uh, and I, I traveled throughout uh, the, the border area of the United States and then to the East Coast all the way to New York. And I had uh, a number of uh, hearings with uh, people um, that, um, that, uh, that, I, that were gathered thanks to the support that I had of some NGOs in the United States, particularly the American Civil Liberties Union that uh, helped me to organize some hearings uh, where I heard uh, stories, horror stories about uh, the practice of uh, these raids in residential areas. And uh, so that was um, my, that was a very important part of my report, uh, which um, According to the protocol, the, the, the final version is uh, sent to the respective government, and then after their response, the special rapporteur decides on what uh, to follow, and then there is a final, final version that is presented to the General Assembly of the United Nations Council on Human Rights uh, in Geneva, and uh, so that's, uh, I, that's what I, I followed that procedure and uh, I presented my report. And uh, my the, the facts of my report uh, were denied uh, by the United, United States delegation <coughs> in Geneva, flatly denied, uh, which of course was, that didn't, obviously, that was not flattery. Uh, but, um, but it, I was very fortunate because the following year after I presented my final report, uh, there was a, a research conducted by the Cardoso Institute of Law in New York, the prestigious uh, school of law, where they, based on my report, which of course was a public information after I presented it uh, in Geneva, um, they conducted a research on the raids, uh, interviewing uh, victims, uh, interviewing agents, and uh, reviewing uh, all the documentation about the about the, the raids. And uh, they confirmed everything that I have said in my report. So it was uh, something that it was very fortunate because, you know, uh, the United States delegation had officially denied what I have said, then 
uh, when I sent them my, the report of the Cardoso Institute confirming what I have said, uh, they didn't respond. Um, and uh, so I decided to make it public in the uh, United Nations. And um, and I have had, I have had uh, because this has been public information, uh, some um, uh, some letters, uh, some of them uh, very nice, uh, of people that uh, didn't know some of the facts that were reported that I'm I'm, I'm going to be showing to you on the raids, and uh, in one or two not very nice letters. But um, obviously, of people that uh, were totally, um, totally alien from uh, the kind of information that uh, was the result of this, uh, uh, the publication of this research uh, in a booklet that is uh, entitled "Constitution on Ice." Um, actually with ironic reference to the agency that conducts the race that goes by the same acronym, I. And, um, and that has been circulated very widely in the United States. Uh, it's a recent report, 2009. And, um, and this is something that, uh, that I'm um, presenting together with the information that I was able to gather as a uh, special rapporteur in my visit to Mexico that followed my visit to the United States, uh, particularly in the southern part of Mexico that is uh, uh, bordering with Central America. And where I found uh, gross violations of human rights um, equal or uh, worse than what I have found in the United States against Mexicans, um, and uh, I obviously I've had um, a good number of uh, interviews with victims of, uh, of these raids with Central American immigrants uh, that uh, had been uh, victimized by uh, um, law enforcement authorities in Mexico and uh, that uh, had been suffering a, a countless number of uh, violations of their human rights as well. Uh, I reported that, uh, and uh, I based uh, my report not only in my own uh, experience and the field work that I did as a special rapporteur, but on the basis of a research that was conducted by the National um, National Human Rights Council of Mexico. This is a semi-autonomous, uh, um, semi-government agency in Mexico that conducted uh, some research on the things that I have reported in, in, uh, in uh, at, at the United Nations, and they confirmed my reports, and they expanded on my reports particularly focusing on the kidnapping practices of law enforcers against Central American immigrants uh, for the purposes of extortion. That's a practice that uh, uh, it continues to these days. 
And uh, in spite of the reports that several of us <coughs> produced about the violations of human rights, uh, nothing concrete has been done other than just plain <coughs> rhetoric on the part of government officials. The difference between the, the Mexican part of my report, which of course you will find in the paper that has been circulated around, that, that I wrote uh, originally for another conference uh, recently, uh, and, um, and, and that is something that contrasts with the report that I made in the United States, because in the case of Mexico, the Mexican government uh, did not respond not uh, not affirming uh, or uh, negating what, what I have said. Uh, and, but that has been quite uh, widely um, known in Mexico because uh, part of uh, what I do, besides my teaching obligations at Notre Dame, uh, is taking <coughs> advantage of my research uh, to write a weekly column in a major newspaper in Mexico daily reforma uh, that is of the widest uh, circulation in Mexico and 97% of my op-ed pieces are related to the, the uh, area of immigration <coughs> the immigration in Mexico and also immigration in the United States and so I have widely diffused information mm -hmm. that, uh, that you will find in my paper uh, the the theoretical part of my paper, and here, and here uh, I, I feel trepidation because I'm in front of former faculty members of Notre Dame that taught me long time ago that uh, should not be, uh, should not feel any kind of responsibility for the kind of thing that I'm going to be saying. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but then I know that they will enjoy this uh, theoretical part that I, uh, that I, I think that I will go first with that. Well, let me go back to this uh, quotation because this is a, this quotation, can you read it? Uh, no, let me read it to you. The reliance of short-term job assignments, paid intermediaries, and recruitment practices that produce labor surpluses transfer many U.S. agricultural production costs to the migrant workers and the local communities that sustain them. Migrant workers, so necessary for the success of the labor-intensive U.S. agricultural system, subsidize, <coughs> I would like to underline this word, subsidize that very system with their own and their family indigents. The system functions to transfer costs to workers who are left with income so marginal that for the most part, only newcomers and those with no other options are willing to work on our nation's farms. Take a look at... I'm sorry, this is my wife. <laughs> Alberto 
estoy en medio de la conferencia. Bye. Wow. This, uh, as you can see, this is uh, a, the conclusion of a research that was conducted under the auspices of the can see this is this was the conclusion of a research report that was done under the auspices of the US Department of Labor uh, this was based on a research uh, that was conducted in California that as you as you probably know uh, California uh, is the is the producer of uh, one-third of the total agricultural production of the of the United States And that production is produced with a labor force that is 95% Mexican, and out of that 95, 60% out of, uh, out of that is undocumented immigrants. That's the labor force that produces one-third of the total agricultural production, uh, which is based in California. And uh, that's... Um, degree of dependency on the labor force, uh, and I would like to emphasize it's, uh, uh, the majority of that is, uh, is undocumented immigrants, regular migrants, uh, and um, that is something that uh, led me to emphasize some of the aspects of uh, the vulnerability of migrants, which is a concept that is that is uh, has been widely used in the context of the debate on immigration in the United Nations and uh, I, I found originally very um, vague uh, kind of uh, explanations about that concept which uh, kind of led me to the, uh, the type of uh, theoretical frame that, that I'm going to show you Let me change page because I, I don't find the, the diagram. Um, so I'm going to, to change to the, to the data that, I, that uh, comes out of the, uh, the report on constitutional rights that was conducted by the Cardoso Institute of Law, which is 
this is the uh, this is the the, uh, the Facebook of the uh, the booklet that I mentioned. And this is some sort of a summary of the findings. Can you read that? Thank you. The, the, the last point is important because it becomes relevant in the context of the new law that has been approved in Arizona that, as, as you know, um, uh, approves the practices that, uh, that have been uh, the basis for uh, practices of, pol of um, police profiling that becomes legitimized by this law and that is going to be a new source of violations of human rights. This report, I'm going to make a summary of this. This report, it's a, uh, it provides the empirical <coughs> basis uh, for these, uh, these practices that, that I'm um, continuously um, surprised of the extent to which the American people don't know anything about this. And um, this is something that, uh, in spite of uh, reference that have been made in, in the New York Times of uh, these kind of findings, um, it's uh, very widely ignored. Uh, and, uh, <coughs> and this was the basis of uh, some of the uh, letters that I received uh, that show that the people were actually recognizing that they didn't know anything about this kind of uh, practices of the police of, of the law enforcement agency uh, particularly in regard to the uh, predominance as uh, you will see in the findings of, of this uh, of this report uh, on the predominance of police profiling in the rates <laughs> So uh, there is data that shows that uh, uh, that uh, when the police enter in a home in the middle of the night and arresting all the adults uh, with the outcries of the children and the protest of the people arrested, um, the, those that are finally detained are basically uh, Latinos. And uh, in a, a, a close to 90 percent, as you will uh, see reference of that uh, that finding here, and, uh, and that is something that uh, sometimes leave um, the children um, with no uh, guardians or anybody to take care of them, and uh, sometimes. Uh, this becomes not only a separation of uh, families in which the adults end up being deported uh, and uh, separated with the children. And sometimes uh, the, there, there are programs uh, that uh, assist the families to send the children of, the, of those that have been detained uh, all the way to Mexico 
of where these children go to a totally new area, a new country with uh, a language that they don't speak and uh, with no knowledge about uh, anything. Just to illustrate this, let me introduce a parenthesis here. I interview a nine-year-old boy uh, who had been put aside because he seems to have some very serious psychological problems. And uh, the origin of that, of these psychological problems, were that uh, this boy was sent to Mexico to reunite with their parents in a small town um, in Mexico where it's very common to find uh, dogs just loose and on the streets uh, all over town. And this boy had a, a um, pathological fear, uh, a horror for dogs. Uh, he felt, and he said that, he felt that uh, he was going to be eaten by any dog that he confronted when he was uh, sent to Mexico, there were dogs all over the place. And uh, so this uh, actually made his illness more serious. And um, <laughs> there, there are no programs in Mexico or in the United States to assist uh, these children. Um, and uh, this is uh, part, of the, part of the story, but of course this is related to... Um, serious violations, systematic violations of human rights related to the, uh, these uh, police, police raids. In the case of the uh, Mexican report, I can I have the assistance of someone that knows how to handle this? Because uh, I cannot find in this file a diagram that I need to show. Uh, this probably was my mistake. So. Your memory stick. Of course, please uh, don't hesitate to ask any questions if, if you have in the meantime. Yes. I guess I, I, I'm not an attorney, but I guess I understand from your slides from the Cardozo Center that they consider any raid that doesn't have a, a warrant, an arrest, a criminal arrest warrant, as being a violation of the Constitution. Correct. Is that 
Administrative, which is deemed a violation of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. Okay, so the position of the Cardozo Center is that only the only people who could be deported uh, are, are, are people for whom a, a criminal arrest warrant is going to be Correct. The normal procedure is that uh, the uh, ICE agents come to a house and they uh, they say that they are looking they are looking for John Doe. And so the people inside answer, we don't know any John Doe doesn't live here. And they take advantage of the proximity, physical proximity to the door to enter physically, abruptly, with their hands, with their, uh, their uh, guns uh, drawn, and, uh, and then conduct the arrest of the adults. That's the practice that is uh, actually the f main finding of this study. This is the theoretical part uh, of the notion of vulnerability. And that um, has to do with a, a use of a uh, Hegelian uh, dialectics, uh, which, of course, as you know, it's uh, very, very different than materialistic dialectics. Uh, Marx, as a very rebellious student of Hegel, said that all Hegelian notions had to be put on his head, and that uh, so he ended up with the historical materialism, which of course uh, it's uh, substantially different theoretically than Hegelian uh, dialectics. Basically, the Hegelian di dialectics go from the explanation of uh, human history, uh, as he said. Uh, following the method of uh, contradiction, looking for contradictions in which one is a thesis uh, that is contrasted with another that is the antithesis, 
out of which, out of the two, comes a synthesis that is that comes out of the elements of the both the thesis and the antithesis. So I discovered that um, there were a basic inherent contradiction between the notions of um, of uh, the notions of uh, that from which the definition of a national and a foreigner uh, coming from um, the constitution in most countries, uh, the constitution that based on a sovereign right they define what a national is and what a non-national, that is a foreigner or immigrant is. And that was in a dialectical contradiction with another sovereign decision from the part of many countries, including the United States, many countries that have accepted human rights to be at the top of the, uh, of the legal hierarchy. And... Uh, I dropped this. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And the acceptance of a government, such as the government of the United States, of the notion of human rights uh, in by the signing and ratification of uh, international uh, covenants such as the uh, United Nations uh, Covenant on uh, Civil and Political Rights that includes basically most of the human rights uh, that are in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that is at the basic chart of the United Nations. And uh, I found a contradiction between uh, the notion of human rights on the one hand and the constitutional definition of a national and foreigner on the other, in the sense that uh, that basic distinction made by the Constitution is in contradiction with the basic notion of human rights that are, that are um, uh, granted to human beings regardless of uh, the national origin. And uh, so if the human rights... Um, uh, international law is accepted by the United States uh, based on the notion that human rights are to be applied to all human beings regardless of national origin, then that is in direct contradiction to the distinction made by the constitutions that define nationals as opposed to non-nationals, that is, foreigners or immigrants. And that uh, this, this contradiction placed in a very large historical context then and, uh, and, and placed in, the, in a, some sort of a process of evolution that uh, from the Constitution that defines national and foreigners, when these national and foreigners enter into social relations, they derive some sort of a, an asymmetry of power structure in which nationals are on top and foreigners are at the bottom in a subordinate position. So when this uh, dichotomy in the social relations becomes 
more complex and becomes wiser in the social context, then it becomes the basis for an asymmetry of power of these two groups, out of which uh, develop a, a, uh, a, a two dimensions that I call the, the structural vulnerability as opposed to the cultural vulnerability, resulting from the social relations of asymmetry of power between nationals and foreigners. Out of these uh, social relations, uh, I distinguish between extreme vulnerability, which is the objective conditions that is on, on, on which uh, some people are placed, and that could be illustrated by the victims of these uh, raids, uh, which um, is nurtured by the cultural vulnerability, which is the set of values that result out of ideologies, of anti-immigrant ideologies, xenophobia, racism, that uh, nurture the structural conditions of extreme vulnerability. That is, everything that you see here as facts reported by a scientifically based report uh, made by, by the Cardoso Institute is, uh, uh, takes place in a context in which um, people support the raids in general. People support the rate. And in this support, there is a very important distinction because the rates that are conducted by these agents of, uh, of ICE are basically legal. That is, they become out of the immigration laws. What they are doing, theoretically, is enforcing immigration laws. But in practice, what they do is in violation of human rights. So right there you have the contradiction between the legal definitions that comes out of the Constitution defining the difference between national and foreigners that, uh, uh, that then create conditions of impunity for these violations. And uh, these conditions of impunity enter into a clash with uh, the forces coming from the other side of the dialectics, that is, the, the sovereign decision of a country to accept human rights at the top of the legal hierarchy. And then this notion here becoming uh, processed in a, in a context of international relations. So what we understand by globalization enters into the picture of the evolution that takes place out of the decision to place uh, the human rights at the top of the legal hierarchy uh, comes international relations and uh, I use the examples of the European Union and the Schengen agreements and then this goes to a point in which in several countries like more than a dozen countries in Europe that have reached the point of granting voting rights to legal immigrants, therefore empowering immigrants in a contrast with the process that comes from the other side, which is a powerlessness condition, which is the definition of vulnerability. Vulnerability is an imposed condition of powerlessness. 
that condition of powerlessness clashes here when this condition of powerlessness uh, ends up with conditions of impunity for violation of human rights. It clashes with the notion that comes from the other side uh, that were uh, subjected to the, uh, process, the uh, various processes of international relations in what we understand by the concept of globalization. And this clashes with the conditions of impunity. And in this clash, then, is what we have the basic contradiction that is uh, in the uh, practices of uh, the agents of, uh, of ICE against subjects of human rights that are the migrants, regardless of the uh, violation of immigration laws, human rights have rights. They are human beings. And so they are subjects of human rights, and therefore they are the victims of violations in direct contradiction to the uh, evolution of the concept that came out of the Constitution, differentiated immigrants and, and nationals. So um, this is something that this uh, frame, this theoretical frame is something that I have applied to the analysis of both the contradictions uh, in, in the uh, enforcement of uh, immigration laws in the United States as well as the contradictions and uh, gross abuses that, uh, that are in the experience in Mexico against immigrants from Central America. And let me finish with that, and I'm opening for questions, objections, rejections, in an open manner. Thank you. several places. Um, to be close to home, the, the international treaty between Canada and Mexico about uh, immigrant workers. Um, this is uh, this um, agreement, this bilateral agreement between Mexico and Canada uh, has to do with uh, following the recommendation of the United Nations of um, solving disputes via the uh, negotiations and bilateral agreements. And uh, this bilateral agreement between Mexico and Canada has been in operation for something like 30 years and uh, with uh, relative success. And the relative success is about almost 90% of these 30 years with no incidents. And, uh, and, and actually... This is a rational way to solve the need for agricultural workers in Canada with the need for jobs in Mexico through a rational process of an international treaty. Uh, this is something that uh, um, it has been repeated also in the practices of bilateral agreements about migrant workers between the governments of Mexico and some governments of Central America that uh, have been in operation 
for some years, in spite of which the violations of human rights are committed. And, uh, and, and, and there are other countries that have followed bilateral agreements, particularly in Asia, the case of the Philippines, uh, it's one that is outstanding in the number of bilateral agreements they have, they have reached. So there are, uh, it was, there are examples in the world of no contradiction. Yes? I have a question of how you, I'm an economist, know nothing about Hegelian uh, dialectics and so forth, but it seems your thesis and, and antithesis, uh, I, I would question that in terms of your characterization of the U.S. Constitution, because the U.S. constitutional rights don't say that, that don't refer to citizens, they refer to persons. Um, and, it, and, and it seems on that, it, 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 you know, recognizing that these are rights given to persons, then you're, the, the seeming contradiction breaks down. And certainly Not our, really. courts, our, our courts interpret, uh, interpret our constitutional rights as <coughs> applying to uh, people even potentially in Bagram Air Base. Well, I would not go along with that notion because the Constitution makes clear distinctions of the rights of nationals as opposed to the as opposed to the absence of these rights by non-nationals. There is that dichotomy. There is not a dichotomy between national and foreigners, but actually the dichotomy is between nationals and non-nationals. Therefore, the immigrants follow into that category. And that's the dichotomy that I'm referring to. Obviously, non-nationals non, uh, have no voting rights. That's a crucial distinction. Well, then the only resolution of this is to deal with and do away with national identities. Then. Is that what you're arguing for? No, no. Okay, well, look at, look at Canada. As I understand Canada's migration, the way that work is organized in Canada, that uh, obviously there's well there, there's a national identity card. There's an automatic check when one gets a job in Canada, uh, an automatic check of whether one is there legally or not. So yeah. there is still a notion of legally being able to work in the country, uh, either because one is a citizen or there's been some treaty reached with the country, such as uh, such as Mexico. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm still, uh, but, but the question, so they're, they're, by definition, and there are no illegal immigrants working uh, working in Canada because of the national ID card system that is all computerized and so forth. So what, uh, what could be worked out in the United States because we, we have people working uh, working illegally here. The, the solution is, well, what? Build a you know, one solution is supposed to build a fence and, and keep keep the workers out, uh, or uh, just have a blanket amnesty. This not my area, but no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not getting where you get the synthesis, what the synthesis is, and and respecting international human rights declarations, which, as you know, many you know conservative legal scholars in this country uh, are very suspicious of. Say, say of signing UN declarations and so forth. They said the U.S. Constitution is is uh, is primary and the uh, and, 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 and all controlling. 
Well, that's the reason why there is a contradiction uh, of the, in the dichotomy that I just mentioned to you. Uh, and, and, and here, um, the, the paradoxical situation is that uh, the, United, the United States has maintained uh, a uh, trajectory of practices against recognition of human rights uh, in a very wide set of uh, uh, arrangements, except that the, uh, the United Nations Convention on Civil and Political Rights was drafted and was agreed upon and signed in the middle of the Cold War. The United States was very interested politically to put in the in the uh, chair of uh, for the accused to uh, to the Soviet Union by accusing it of all kinds of violation of human rights, and therefore this uh, convention was promoted by the United States. Therefore, the United States signed the convention and then later on ratified the convention. And the convention includes the majority of the, the rights that are in the, the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's the reason why the United States has entered into very clear contradiction between what it has accepted using a sovereign right, a sovereign decision, uh, on the one hand, that is accepting human rights at the top of the legal hierarchy, but on the other, distinguishing between nationals and non-nationals, to which, uh, that is, in this case, nationals with some privileges, uh, the most important of that being the voting rights, and uh, privileges that are not granted to non-nationals, therefore establishing an asymmetry of power between these two groups, nationals and foreigners that in practice results in an evolution in which uh, the, um, uh, the, the cultural vulnerability arises out of the notions of uh, this asymmetry of power, deriving directly from this asymmetry of power, in which uh, the immigrants end up being the, um, those to blame for uh, many conditions uh, by the expressions of ideologies of anti-immigration and xenophobia and even racism because you know the social the police profile out of which you see data in this study referring to actual behavior the police profiling that's racist by definition and those racist practices have been systematically maintained in the United States in contradiction with the notion of the acceptance of human rights. you follow me? Yeah, I do follow you. I, I'm thinking of various things, one being that the asymmetry has other sources besides oh, yes. racism in the United States. That, For example, the state of development in Mexico, in particular rural Mexico, where, where rural workers in the United States are coming from, they, they, they wouldn't be so powerless if, you know, if the state of Mexico, uh, the state of Mexican development were, were different, and then there was, there was something, something else. I'm, I'm also wondering about racial profiling, it's simply saying that, for example, 90% of the people picked up in these raids are Latinos, it doesn't strike me as automatic proof of racial profiling, you have 90%, as your data suggests, 90% plus of the 
people who are here without without papers uh, are in fact Latino, right? I mean, it's like all these discussions of whether traffic's, you know, traffic stops are, are racist or involve profiling and so forth, all these discussions that don't involve the chances that one segment of the population or another uh, is more inclined than another than other segments to bring traffic laws. So I, I, would, I would just argue about your proof there of your proposition of racism. Well, like uh, everything, you know, that's uh, derived from whatever credit you give to the data that I'm presenting here. Uh, you might believe it or not. You know, no, I believe the data, but it, it's, it, it, it's data that, that provides part of the picture. So uh, it's, it's clear to me that, that the 90% demonstrates clearly that there is a racist motive behind them. The Arizona, and the Arizona law and the Arizona law is a clear example. Anyway. Uh, we can't hear, I'm sorry, I said 90% of undocumented immigrants are not Latino. Only 40% of undocumented immigrants are 60%. 60%. 60% are? Well, there's 60% of the farm workers who you mentioned it. 60% of the Hispanic farm workers in California, is this what you were saying? 60% of, of the 90% oh, yes. are, are, are undocumented, undocumented Hispanic workers. Correct, Hispanic correct. Oh, but, but I want to say something else, please let me I think uh, the, that contradiction that you mentioned between the, uh, the, 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 the notion the notions implied or uh, written in the Constitution and the, the, the acceptance of the Declaration of Human Rights. I think that, also, that that contradiction is also applicable and happening, actually, not only to regarding migrants, but also regarding U.S. nationals. And the, the racism and the discrimination and different kinds of profiling, and I mean, it has happened with the black population, it has happened with also with the Native American, that happens also with, the, uh, with U.S. nationals. So I, I think that contradiction is, is, a, is a contradiction that is... is, 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 is Has a wider context. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's... A, it's it, it, it. The other thing I wanted to say is that that contradiction plays with the first contradiction, the, the, the one you were talking before at the beginning of your, your talk, uh, which is uh, be between... Actually, you didn't, didn't mention that as a contradiction, but I see it as a contradiction also. Between the, the repression or the, um, let's say, the, 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 the repression of migrants, but at the same time, the need of the system, economic need of the system, those very same migrants, in order to maintain the status quo and the system, the economic system going on. So that, that's, that, this contradiction, this legal contradiction, works perfectly well, in my view, with the, first, the other contradiction, which probably is, is a deeper one, and uh, in, in my opinion, it's a deeper one because I'm not Hegelian. So uh, it, it, works, uh, it works at the, at the, at the, at the very material basis of society. Yes, well, in fact, you are alluding to something that, uh, that is, that probably would be part of a, different invitation, uh, but uh, that is a contradiction between a demand for the labor force of the immigrant on the one hand and the, and the resistance to accept that demand as a fact, 
there is a widespread resistance in the United States to accept that they need the they need the labor force of the migrant. And uh, but the the uh, what has been demonstrated scientifically by a good number of studies is that that demand exists. And uh, you could argue that out of that the existence of that demand, there is some sort of a obligation from the part of the United States by producing the demand, uh, by making the demand endogenous to the United States, that produces some obligation to respect some rights because that demand is produced in the United States. And that demand is in interaction with the supply. The demand is produced in the United States by the U.S. economy, but also is helping to develop and to accumulate capital in the U.S. economy. You say they are subsidized. Yes. The, the surplus value they're producing is subsidizing those very same industries in the yes. other world. This could be extended to cover a That's the core of the market. Yes. Yeah, like the construction industry. You could go parallel to the agricultural industry. I was wondering uh, a question because 100 years before the Declaration of Human Rights was the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and how the violation of that treaty in the in a historical context of relations with Mexican people has influenced this contradiction that you're describing. Maybe, maybe there is some influence, but I don't have any empirical information that would uh, lead me to uh, to say that there is a direct relationship. I, I, I don't see it. Okay. Yes? Um, I want to go back to uh, your discussion on citizenship and just get your thoughts on the difference in the very definition of what citizen is. You know, here, uh, the U.S., kind of the basic definition that we have is you're born in the U.S. or a U.S. citizen. Yet in, in Mexico, you know, um, I'm not sure if, it's, if there's any kind of codification of that of citizenship. And um, working in migrant communities, one of the things that you find is that, that citizenship at a national level is, is always, almost always superseded by citizenship at a community level, right? Um, and so can you comment maybe how that, those very competing ideas of citizenship maybe influence, you know, the model that they've out? Well, this would be uh, turning the page to another chapter. Uh, the difference between Mexico and the United States is that uh, in the United States, as you mentioned, you are a citizen uh, since you are born, okay? And uh, so the babies are citizens. In Mexico, babies are not citizens until they reach 18 years of age. So the, um, there is a distinction in Mexico between nationality and citizenship. In the United States, there is not such a distinction. And uh, in Mexico, that distinction was the basis for a uh, modification, well, the a reform of the Constitution in which the Mexican nationality 
to which a number of privileges are attached and not to citizens, uh, a Mexican nationality was declared um, permanent. That is, that regardless of other nationalities that you acquire, you maintain your nationality as a Mexican, which it amounts to double nationality uh, for all practical purposes. Uh, and uh, that is very, very common. Uh, most of my family has double nationality. And, uh, and that, uh, particularly if you live at the border, that gives you advantages to, uh, to enjoy both uh, contexts. Uh, so, but in, in Mexico, that distinction uh, has been maintained. Nationality is the basis for certain rights, patrimonial rights, such as owning land next to the border and owning land in the coastal areas of the country. That's, that's a privilege for nationals. Uh, Non-nationals are excluded from that. Okay, but that's uh, the distinction between nationality and citizenship. Citizenship is the right to vote, basically, the voting, the uh, everything that comes out of the voting rights. So that that's a very serious distinction. Yes. Bustamante, I'm listening to you very well. So and, uh, and I'm very clear what you are exposing your presentations. Thank you. Thank you. What I would like to hear from you is now, if you have some idea how we can get the solution to this problem, so we can just Do you know something that can help to us to get some solution for this specific problem, or do you believe that it's too complex that it's impossible to get some solution of that? No. Because this problem is everywhere. But I can tell you one thing, so I live in India or Taiwan, I'm seeing the same problem with the Vietnamese people, or in Singapore, wherever it's around the world. So it's not a specific thing from here, from this country. So probably you can say, you can argue that really, U.S. citizen has right to, to defend the country or the field because they feel whatever your concept about nationality is, you can define these uh, rights of the people who already live here, which is right. It's understandable. It's, it's Thank you. So, but uh, from the perspective of food that you are the expert guy, so do you have some idea how we can get this country's solution? Get some idea from proposal or whatever This is an idea. Let me try to compromise. let me try to respond to your very important question, uh, making a distinction between the theoretical and the practical. In the theoretical dimension, um, what you have is that. Um, there is a process of interaction of factors located at the two sides of the border. Okay? These factors are the de demand of the labor force of the immigrants from the part of the United States in interaction with the forces that shape the supply of uh, immigrants in Mexico. 
the, both the supply and demand are endogenous respectively of the two countries and they enter into a process of interaction via the labor relations okay so the phenomenon of immigration from Mexico to the United States is bilateral by definition because it consists of nationals of one country coming to another country that is not their own so that makes it bilateral and a phenomenon that is bilateral could never be solved by a unilateral decision okay the immigration policies of the United States have been traditionally unilateral even President Obama has followed the same stream of thought that uh, in which the solution is a is a congressional reform of immigration laws, which by definition is unilateral. You cannot have a bilateral decision without breaking the notions of sovereignty. So it is the sovereign right of the United States to to issue immigration laws as part of uh, the sovereign rights of every country. Every country has the sovereign right to issue its own immigration laws. That is, to put restrictions on those that are not national, those that are foreigners, and therefore the dichotomy that I have been talking about. So in, the, in this context, then, uh, a, the United States government has defined undocumented immigration as a domestic problem, obviously as an internal problem one that can only be solved by internal decisions, unilateral decisions. So, in the theoretical context, a phenomenon that is bilateral by definition cannot be solved by unilateral decisions. So, in that notion, there is no solution because the United States insists in following just a unilateral perspective. Mexico has asked the United States for decades to have a bilateral negotiations on the question of immigration. The United States has resisted in accepting that. And the resistance to recognize the phenomenon as bilateral is ideological. It's not based on facts. And that ideology is supported by the power of the United States which is in a asymmetrical power structure with Mexico. And then, in that area, what you find is no solution, as long as the United States insists in having a solution that is unilateral, a congressional reform, and to the phenomenon that is not uh, unilateral, but bilateral. Now, in practical terms, uh, Mexico and the United States have been successful in dealing with notions of asymmetry uh, and uh, superseding that, and that's a result of NAFTA, the North American Trade uh, Treaty, uh, actually trilateral treaty. And uh, that, that was an exercise that was a, su a successful attempt to overcome a lot of asymmetries. And it was successful. Uh, some people could argue that it's uh, something 
uh, that has bad consequences. But the fact of the matter is that it succeeded in being signed and being and the uh, legal basis that regulates trade between the two countries. So in practice, the two countries have been able to deal with inequalities in a rational way on immigration, the resistance, which is basically ideological, is the main obstacle for a practical avenue toward a practical solution on the question. This is debatable, of course. But what I am saying is based on facts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Apparently, I've convinced everybody. There is no more questions. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Professor Bustamante. We changed classes in 15 minutes, so I want to leave time for people to get where they need to go. Thank you very much. Yeah, I want to thank well. all of you. It's uh, obviously a big issue. I know that next year on the campus they're organizing an interdisciplinary working group on migration and immigration, the ethical sides of it. And obviously we came down early here to the nub of the matter here without any clear uh, solution to what the trade-offs need to be. But in any case, thank you very much. Very uh, well. Thank all of you.